Well, good morning to you. It's almost afternoon, but it's always good to be with you. Uh, It's good to be in Ohio now where I grew up, and uh, we got a lot of wonderful things happening down in our little neck of the woods around Bucyrus. We we do have a group of... uh, from the Blooming Grove Church, about 12 to 15 people learning to give Bible studies. Uh, we know God's going to open more doors for us. He's already blessed us with about 27 people to study with already. And uh, and keep in prayer, we had a Bible study contact who's uh, actually a resident at the Lima Prison. And uh, I filled out an application. But keep that in prayer. We have about 14 individuals that are residents at the prison that are Seventh-day Adventists. And nobody's studying with them, but there's a, a dear uh, lady who brings the quarterly there. But uh, So just uh, pray that the doors will be open. There are 16 residents in this prison, so there's a lot of possible Bible studies there. So if you would please keep that in your prayers. Well, before we begin our sermon, let's bow our head for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are so gracious, so beautiful, so wonderful, and you are so great. And Father, we just thank you for the provision of these sacred hours, the provision of this wonderful, beautiful church facility, and of course, this beautiful body of Christ. Father, we want to lay this service in your hands and ask that the Holy Spirit, that wonderful, perfect teacher, will guide each one of our hearts and minds heavenward into a deeper love and trust in Thee. And uh, may our hearts be warmed with Your Word to draw us closer to You. And so we pray all this and leave it in Your hands, and we pray it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, the title of the sermon, I think, was uh, God's Sovereignty. It actually could be entitled, God Must Be the Planner and the Problem Solver. Uh, And you'll see that as we kind of go through it. And I kind of want to begin by um, talking about a star called Betelgeuse. Anybody heard of Betelgeuse? Okay. It's kind of a funny name for a star. Um, Did you know that from planet Earth to our sun is 93 million miles? That's a long way, isn't it? Betelgeuse is 778 million miles. It is almost nine times wider than the distance between us and our own sun. And you just start thinking about, well, that's just one star that God had made eight to nine times wider than the distance between us and our sun. And that's, to me, incomprehensible. And then you think in terms of 100 to 200 trillion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy. That's incomprehensible. Then you think of Hubble Telescope and what Hubble can see, and what they can see is approximately 100 to 200 trillion galaxies. So you start thinking about how many stars that would be and how many planets that would be, how many unfallen worlds that would be. And God made all these by the breadth of his mouth. It says in the book of Psalm 33.9, He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It stood fast. As I think a little bit more about God's creation and we look up in the stars and we sometimes we think it's a star, it's actually a galaxy. And some of those stars are, again, much bigger than our own, just gigantic. And then I think of just smaller things. Just take a tree out here that's 20 years old. And it has more cells in it than our body. It will have... 10 to the 30th power, that's 30 zeros after 10, cells in just a 20-year-old tree. And of course, when Jesus says tree, it's just not one thing, it's 10 to the 30th power of things, of cells, that are bark cells and leaf cells and, and wood cells and root cells. And there are today 3 trillion times 10 to the 12th power, 12 zeros, of trees on planet Earth. And that's just trees. That's just trees. And our Earth is covered by 80% of what? Water. Imagine what he did in creating trees when we didn't have that much water. And again, that's just trees. 
But as we go to our scripture reading in Colossians 1, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things what? They consist, uh, the Greek word that means that, that they all hold together. I mean, to me, it's just marvelous that God could just speak and just create it all. But everything actually consists by him, too. Let me read you something here from Ministry of Healing, page beginning on page 416. God is constantly employed in upholding and using as his servants the things that he has made. He works through the laws of nature, using them as his instruments. They, the laws of nature, listen to this, are not self-acting. In other words, the law of gravity just doesn't act by itself. God simply uses the law of gravity as an instrument to hold things together himself. He not only creates it, he holds it together. It goes on and says, nature in her in her testimony, or in her work, testifies of the intelligent presence and active agency of a being who moves in all things according to his will. It is not by inherent power that year by year the earth yields its bounties and continues its march around the sun. The hand of the infinite one is perpetually at work guiding this planet. It is God's power continually exercised that keeps the earth in position in its rotation. It is God who causes the sun to rise in the heavens. It is by his power that vegetation is caused to flourish. In God, we live and move and have our being. The beating heart, the throbbing pulse, every nerve and muscle in the living organism is kept in order and activity by the power of an ever-present God. The laws of nature, the laws of thermodynamics, all these various laws are simply instruments in the hands of God who holds it all together, which is why in science we don't really know why an atom holds together. We say gravity, we say inertia, we say all these different things, but in reality we really can't quite explain it because it seems like there's something other than these laws. We don't know. We know that a seed has some sort of electricity or something. But how does life really come forth from a seed planted in the ground? We know it does, but we can't quite explain how that happens. And it's because God created everything, that he created everything for fellowship and that he's involved in everything. And without him, we wouldn't even be breathing right now. I want us to think about that. So, if God created everything, which he did, and it's nothing for him to create a sun that's eight times wider than the distance between us and our sun, and to hold it together so it's always burning, to make the birds fly and to make everything perfect, and consistently hold it together, then why wouldn't he always be the planner and the problem solver in our life. Isn't that right? Now I want us to turn to Genesis, the book of Genesis, chapter 3. You know, I've been told that years ago, Seventh-day Adventists would go for nature walks. And they'd spend more time in nature. And as we go through this sermon, we're going to realize how important that is for us living in the end of time. Because if all we see is brick and mortar and pavement, if all we see in our life from day to day is just what man makes, then we'll be more fearful of man in the end of time. But if we can see the heavens and realize how great God is, and not only of all the marvelous creation, not just in this little world, but throughout the universe, and realize how he holds it together, we have nothing to fear of man. But that's why we're Sabbath keepers. 
because we believe that God not only created it, He sustains it, He'll sustain us. And He's in the process of recreating us. So when you look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, we realize that God had forewarned Adam and Eve not to take of the tree of the good, of the knowledge of good and evil, because if they did, they would what? They would die. They would die. And so Satan disguises himself as a serpent, and he comes up to Eve. Verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Well, Adam and Eve didn't know anything about Greek gods because there weren't any Greeks. There's just two people on planet Earth, right? What would gods, plural, mean to them? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right? But imagine what Lucifer is trying to appeal to them. If you had a certain knowledge, if you could partake of this tree and get this secret knowledge or something, then you'll be like gods. Now you just think about what we just described God as, as a creator. He speaks, he creates a galaxy. He creates a world. He creates a tree. He creates all these various animals. He sustains them all. And then you just think about how dangerous this whole concept and Lucifer trying to impress Eve that you could become like gods. Now, friends, that's a mystery. How is it possible? In reality, if we really knew God and knew how great he was, how would it be possible for a created being to ever think that he could become like God? It's ridiculous, right? It'd be absolute insanity. What have we ever created? What do we ever sustain? We are mere recipients. We're not creators. We're not sustainers. We're recipients of God's grace. We're recipients for the very breath that we breathe. And if it weren't for God, we wouldn't exist. We owe everything to God. Let's turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 14, a very familiar verse to us. Isaiah chapter 14. And we'll talk a little bit more about these this afternoon. But in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart... I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of, of the congregation and the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Now, I don't know how long Satan has been alive, but if he's been, if he was the greatest of created beings, he may be the oldest of created beings. How would I know? But if that were true, then we're not talking about just millions of years that he's existed. We're talking billions and trillions. We're talking about numbers that you and I can't even comprehend. And throughout all those years, he had seen God do what? Create. Create worlds. He knew he had never created a world. But he'd seen God create worlds and suns and galaxies, wondering maybe how they consist, but he knew it wasn't by him. And how God made all these worlds absolutely what? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Everybody's what? Everybody's happy. Everybody's joyous. Everybody's healthy. And this is why it's the mystery of iniquity. How is it possible for a created being, even as great as Lucifer, that he could ever get to a point to think that he could be as the Most High? It is a mystery, my friends. It is an absolute mystery. And yet, we have to be careful ourselves. That we don't act as if we're our own God and make our own plans and do all our own problem solving as if we have better ideas than God has. We can make the exact same mistake. Now, if you think it was insane that Lucifer, who knew more about God than any created being, because he was a covering cherub, he was right there in the presence of God. And to think that he thought he could be as the Most High. If you think that's insane. 
Turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. And we'll begin with verse 1. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Paul says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, that that day, the second coming of Christ, be at hand, or that it's coming immediately. There were people in Thessalonica who thought Jesus was coming next month. And Paul's saying, no, you haven't heard that from me, and you haven't heard it from any letter from us. And he goes on and says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the second coming, the parousia, shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin, the Antichrist, right, be revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalt himself above all that is called God and is worshipped so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, sits within the Christian community, showing himself that he is... Now that's a mystery. If you thought it was a mystery that Lucifer thought he could be as the Most High, imagine mortal, fallible men sitting in the temple of God as if they are God. Had they ever created a world? A tree. Trouble. Yeah, they created trouble. They don't sustain anything. The very breadth of their mouth they owe to the Creator. The promise of eternal life is through a Savior. You can't earn it, it's a gift. And so when you think about in the end of time, there's going to be the whole world wandering after the beast and worshiping the beast. And you say, what insanity. If people would just look at the sky and realize how great God is, why would they ever submit themselves to fallible, finite human beings? But this is what God's raised us up for. To be a witness of God's almighty power. To be a witness that there's one creator, one sustainer in the universe who is worthy for us to keep His holy day. To do all that He asks. That He is always the planner. That He's always the problem solver in our life because we trust Him. Because He knows everything. And when we look at this verse and we go down to verse 7 of the same chapter... It says, for the mystery of what? It's the mystery of iniquity, friends, doth already work, and only he who will now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Until pagan Rome was taken out of the way, papal Rome couldn't take over the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist of Bible prophecy, which is described here by Paul as the mystery of iniquity. Because it's an absolute mystery. How could men ever take themselves that serious? To think that they could change God's laws, receive worship from human beings, that humans would look to them as God and the forgiveness of their sins? It's a mystery. Because it doesn't make, it makes zero sense. Creation, just creation alone tells us God alone has to be the planner and the problem solver. He alone is worthy of worship. Now, I want us to look at a few stories here in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, beautiful couple, husband's name was Abram, had a wonderful wife called Sarai. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country from thy kindred and from thy father's house, Unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Abram and Sarah had no what? They had no children, and yet they would be a great nation. And so by faith he leaves Ur, he leaves his father's house, goes to a land that God will show him, a land that Abram had never seen before. But he starts saying, what faith? Just packs his bags 
They head on out because that's what God said and they did, did what God had asked. And God had promised them, without a doubt, a son, children, to become a great nation. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. This is now 10 years later. After they've left Ur, they are now in Canaan. 10 years has passed. Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, her husband Abram, to be his wife. So what Sarai and Abraham did was somewhat of an example of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. You know, because they still believed in the promise, but they didn't have faith that it would be through Sarai. But God said, you would be the father of a great nation. And because time had gone on for 10 years, and it didn't happen according to their calculations, and they thought maybe God should have done it by now. Maybe we need to help God a little bit here. And we're going to take the problem into our own hands and we're going to come up with a solution. And the solution was, and I don't know how many women would do this, take my handmaid and go to her and have a son. Kind of an act of faith and an act of unfaith. Believes in the promise, just doesn't believe God is able to solve the problem now. How often do churches do this? And so, they have a son. His name is Ishmael. Let's turn to chapter 17, verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old and nigh, he left Ur at 75. So we're talking 24 years later, right? And said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Pretty important statement. Walk before me and be thou... Perfect. Verse 2. And I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. Verse 15 and following. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. And I will bless her, and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abram fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is ninety years old bear? And Abraham said unto God, O that Ishmael, my plan, may be Ishmael, that Ishmael might live before thee. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with her seed after him. What's the lesson here? We must believe in all that God has promised, that he will keep his promises, that he doesn't need us to come up with our own plans and our own problem-solving for him to fulfill his promise. You know, I remember when we were helping start up this church, and we had our first prayer meeting, and we knew God wanted us to do outreach, but we had no idea what would be our first seminar. So we said, well, it's really up to God. We need to let God tell us. And it's not that we didn't believe God could tell us audibly. We just thought he probably wouldn't choose that method. Because the method he wants to choose is when we're mingling with people as one who desires their good, we get to know people. And as we get to know people as one who's very interested in them, they start sharing their life story. And in sharing their life story, they begin to share their needs. And so when we came back for our second prayer meeting, every one of us met someone who wanted to stop smoking. Did God tell us which should be our first seminar? He did. He told us by our willingness to follow his method, 
His plan, not our plan. We follow His plan. He opens the way. Seven people wanted to stop smoking. Three of those became members of the church. We could have done a buckshot kind of approach and said, we have no idea, but let's try this, 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 and that. But God has to be the planner and the problem solver. His ways are perfect. Desire of Ages, page 330. In every difficulty, he has his way prepared already ahead of time to bring relief. Our Heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. Therefore, God must be the planner and the problem solver. After all, look how vast this universe is. Think about how he sustains it, even our very breadth. Ministry of Healing 248. Those who surrender their lives to his guidance and to his service will never be in a place in a placed in a position for which he has not made provision. You see, we have no idea how this work's going to finish, but as long as we're always obedient to God, we just follow his lead. We ask him to lead. Our part is not to come up with contrary plans. Our part is only to faithfully follow what he's already shown us. And if we do that, he's the planner, he's the problem solver, we're his obedient people, this work will finish and it'll be much greater than Pentecost. Latter rain will fall. This is what all of us can be a part of. It matters not your number of your talents. It's your willingness of your heart to submit your whole heart to God to be his commandment-keeping people with the faith of Jesus and he'll move mountains for you. Moses had instructed, or angels had actually instructed Moses that God would use him to deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. Isn't that right? Moses knew he was the guy. And the people knew that. So they're watching Moses. Now there came a time when Moses slain an Egyptian and he had to flee. He had to flee. But in his fleeing, I want you to notice what it says here in Patriarchs and Prophets 251. Shut in by the bulwarks of the mountains, Moses was alone with God. The magnificent temples of Egypt no longer impressed his mind with their superstition and falsehood. In the solemn grandeur of the everlasting hills, he beheld the majesty of the Most High and in constant realized how powerless and insignificant were the gods of Egypt. Everywhere the Creator's name was written. Moses seemed to stand in his presence and to be overshadowed by his power. Here, his pride and self-sufficiency were swept away. Moses had a military training. That's what he knew. God couldn't use him as a military leader to rescue the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage. What God needed was the most humble man who completely trusted in the God who created heaven and earth. But notice the connection. As he beheld how great God was in the mountains and all the things that God had created, what happened to his idea of what Egypt was? It got smaller. The temples are insignificant. They're just superstitious. But the God of heaven and earth, he is so great. He is so grand. I'm telling you, friends, as Sabbath keepers, we need to take time in studying God's creation. And in studying that creation, will truly wind up worshiping him who created heaven and earth, which is why we keep the Sabbath. And then we'll have more faith in the message and the movement that God had raised us up for, to go forward like an army without fear of man. What have we to fear? We need to spend more time in nature. And as Moses, he doesn't come back with his sword or a shield. He comes from the wilderness with a staff. To do what? To deliver the people from Egyptian bondage. So what did God actually ask the people to do? They asked them to bear arms? Were they going to fight hand-to-hand with the Egyptians? So here was God's instructions. To be delivered from the superpower of the ancient world. 
He says, take a lamb. Kill the lamb. Capture the blood. Put the blood on your doorpost. Eat the lamb. Have your shoes on, ready to go. And what happened was that God would deliver them by them simply being obedient to him without carrying a weapon. Just by being obedient. And not one Hebrew lost his life out of millions. Had they taken up arms to fight according to their own plans, what would have happened to them? They'd have been absolutely slaughtered. And if by sheer numbers they could have won, and there was a hundred Hebrews left over, can you imagine that? A hundred Hebrews walking through the wilderness, ready to occupy the whole area of Canaan. Couldn't happen. To occupy the whole land of Canaan, he needed all those people. He had to save them all. But they all had to be what? Obedient. That's all they had to do. So God leads them. And instead of leading them straight north, he leads them south. And in going south, there's like this great big body of water called the Red Sea. And on the sides are the mountains. And behind them is the Egyptian army. Why did he do that? He wants them to occupy the land north, but he sends them south. Because they really needed to understand their helplessness. They really needed to understand how great God is and how he will take care of them. How they don't even have to have a weapon in their hand and they'll defeat the greatest superpower in ancient times. And so God delivers them. They walk across dry ground and the seas on either side of them a wall. They start traveling and God feeds them with manna. Water comes out of rocks. Cloud by day. Fire by night. And they get to Kadesh Barnea. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 8. Behold, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. Well, he didn't mean that they were supposed to leave that very second, but God had a plan, Right? God had a perfect plan how they would occupy that land without losing one person, without having a weapon in their hand. And all they had to do was wait and ask for God's counsel. Lord, how should we possess this land? It's like, Lord, how do we do evangelism? What do we do next? It's the same situation. How do we possess the land, Lord? Well, they didn't ask that. Chapter 1, verses 19 and following. And when we departed from Horeb, he went through all that great and terrible wilderness which he saw by the way of the mountain of the Amorites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kadesh Barnea. And I said unto you, you are come unto the mountain of the Amorites, which the Lord our God doth give unto you. Behold, the Lord thy God hath set the land before thee, Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of thy father hath said unto thee, Fear not, neither be discouraged. And ye came near unto me, every one of you, and said, We will send men before us, and they shall search out the land, and bring us word again by what way we must go, go up, and into what cities we shall come. Is there a problem with that picture? You see, instead of asking God, how do we possess this land? They got a church business meeting together. And they says, you know, God's brought us all this way, but now we've got to have our own plan. I think what we ought to do is we ought to get 12 guys. And they should go search the land to see how we should take it. 
so we can figure out how to do this. And so they send the 12 spies. Two come back with a favorable report and 10 come back with a horrible report. And then they all could say, the, the land is flowing with milk and honey. And look at these grapes. I mean, it took several men to just to carry these things. But 10 of them says, but you know, here's a problem. The guys are like giants. And we're like, we're like just grasshoppers. You know, and the cities, they're impregnable. You can't get through them. They're thick, they're high, they're double walls. What are we going to do? And all of a sudden, it did what? It discouraged the people. And they're thinking, ah, God told us to possess it. I don't think we can. I don't, we're not going to do that. Based on them having their own plan. Do you think that the work has suffered because men have come up with plans that haven't worked and it's discouraged people? And they say, wow, we put in all this money, we tried this, and we didn't get any baptisms. There were people who were baptized. I mean, there's only like one left out of ten. And people get discouraged and discouraged. Why? Well, just the outcome. But it wasn't God's plan. You see, friends, when we follow God's plan, God is always what? He's always successful. You imagine a military, not even a military battle, but delivering the Hebrews, millions of them, from the Egyptian army and not losing one person. That's fantastic. That is marvelous. You can't beat that. Why would we ever come up with our own plans just with that one story? Well... So now that they heard that God says you can't have the land, you're going to be out here for 40 years, they decided to have another business meeting. And this is in verse 41. Then ye answered and said unto me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, according to all that the Lord our God commanded us. And when ye had girded on every man his weapon of war, weapons of war, ye we're ready to go up into the hill. I'm going to read you something here from Patriarchs and Prophets, 392 and Ministry of Healing. Satan had gained his object in preventing them from entering Canaan, and now he urged them on to do the very thing in, which, in the face of the divine prohibition, which they refused to do when God required it. So God had required them to take the land, and then they refused. And then God says, no, you can't have it now. And now they say, oh, let's go take it. Isn't that an interesting scenario? Thus the greater deceiver gained the victory by leading them to in rebellion the second time. They had distrusted the power of God to work with their efforts in gaining possession of the land, yet now they presumed upon their own strength to accomplish the work independent of divine aid. The Lord had been had never commanded them to go up and fight. It was not his purpose that they should gain the land by warfare, but by strict obedience to his commands. Isn't that a beautiful state? Imagine the history of Israel leaving Egypt. The Egyptian army is destroyed simply by the people being obedient and taking a land. No weapon. They go all the way through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. God feeds them with manna. Water comes out of rocks. They go over and they possess the land without a weapon, just following God's commands and just being obedient. Imagine what the rest of the world would have said. Who are these people? Who is this God? And what does this sanctuary mean that they do every day? That's the story that should have been told. But now they decided to take the, the land by force against God's prohibition. You see, they're just following their own ideas. They're following their own plans. How, how did it work for them? Complete failure. Absolute failure. See, the reality is, we are just finite, fallible human beings. What do we know? In reality. You know how big this world is? How many people there are to reach? The thoughts people have out there? 
all the mixed up theories and everything that they, and we're trying to reach people. How should this work go forward? Christ has to be the head. The Holy Spirit has to lead us. We need to be simply His obedient, Ten Commandment keeping people by the faith of Jesus. And we'll see people coming into these churches. We will find the earnest seekers of truth when we trust God, which is what the Sabbath is all about. Resting on this day is resting in His divine knowledge and power. And this might sound a little strong, but if we don't trust God enough and we take everything into our own hands and do all our own planning and all our own problem solving, we can go to church on this day, but we're really not Sabbath keepers. Because keeping the Sabbath is 100% trust in God as creator and redeemer and sustainer. That's what the Sabbath is ultimately about. It's not just about a day. It's about your relationship and trust with the creator and the sustainer of this universe. And we come here every Sabbath morning to be able to praise him who sustained us this week. He recreated this week. And we can say, I overcame this by the blood of the lamb and the power of God. And he sustained me by not giving into this. This should be our testimonies from Sabbath to Sabbath as those who believe in creation, who believe in keeping the Sabbath. It's what it's all about. So 40 years later, they finally cross into the promised land. And they're going to follow God's direction and take in the city of Jericho. Is that right? What kind of weapons do they have? Trumpets. Oh, those nasty trumpets. And so they circle the city... And they blow the trumpets. They do it for seven days. And on the seventh day, they do it seven times. All they had to do is obey God's commands. That's it. Didn't have a weapon. Just trumpets. Just obeying God's commands. And what happens? The walls of Jericho come down. How many Hebrews lost their life? Zero. That should tell us something. If God is the planner, God's the problem solver, we can't lose. Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 2, page 996. There must be continual faith and trust in the captain of our salvation. We must obey his orders. The walls of Jericho came down as a result of obeying orders. If we would take out the red books and the Bible and we say, Lord, how do we move forward in this work? And we just follow it based upon God's blueprint. God will bless us. You say, it's not good enough. I got a better idea. How's that any different than what Satan was saying in, in his controversy in heaven? There is ultimately no difference. What would be the difference between that and the papacy saying they have a different and better way? There's no difference, my friends. Page Awesome Prophets, page 493. God will do great things for those who trust in Him. The reason why His professed people have no greater strength is that they trust so much in their own wisdom and do not give the Lord the opportunity to reveal His power in their behalf. He will help His believing children in every emergency if they will place their entire confidence in Him and faithfully obey Him. It sounds like a simple solution, isn't it? And we need to keep it that simple. What does God not know? What is God not able to do? All we do is we follow and we obey. Desire of Ages 336, He never fails to give us the help we need. Now, after Jericho, and of all people, Joshua, What's the next story? The city of Ai. So instead of asking counsel from God after Jericho, Lord, what would you have us do after Jericho? What's Joshua do? He sends spies to Ai to figure out how many men to take to take it by force. Good idea or bad idea? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 493. 
The great victory that God had gained for them had made the Israelites self-confident. I want to come back to that. Because he had promised them the land of Canaan, they felt secure and failed to realize that divine help alone could give them success. Even Joshua laid his plans for the conquest of Ai without seeking counsel from God. One of the things we need to be careful about is even when we gain victories over sin, that we don't become self-confident. Because all victory is by virtue of God's power and God's leading. That every time you gain a victory, you keep continue to praise God and glorify His name and don't become self-confident, oh, I can now do this by myself. We will always, every morning, need to wake up and realize how great God is, how He kept our hearts beating and our pulse throbbing through the night, that we have another day, another day of opportunities to be a witness of His almighty power and knowing all things and how much He loves us is another day to walk with God, but not walk in the path of our own kindling, of our own wisdom. And so after I, you hear about the Gibeonites? How far away did they live? Not very far, but they wanted to make the Israelites think they lived a long, long way away. So they got their raggiest clothes and dirtiest clothes, and they says, man, we got to get some bread. Don't get nice bread, get moldy bread. They make them think we've been traveling all this time. And so they come to the Israelites, and what do they do? They don't seek counsel from God, and they sign a treaty with the Gibeonites. Good idea, bad idea. See, they just need to ask counsel from God. Would God have given them counsel? Yeah. God wants to lead us. He's never asked us to do this by ourselves. And this is how we can be in communion with God. How you and I can be in fellowship with God when we realize we need to let Him be God and we're the receiver. But as long as we keep seeing ourselves as God, solving our own problems, we rarely even go to Him. We're taking most of our time figuring out how we're going to solve this problem instead of going to the problem solver. Let me close with this story. And we're going to pick up some of this this afternoon. In the early years of the gospel work among the Gentiles, some of the leading brethren at Jerusalem clinging to former prejudices and habits of thought, like you had to keep the laws of Moses, had not cooperated heartily with Paul and his associates. They felt as if the work of preaching the gospel should be carried forward in harmony with their opinions. Acts the Apostles, page 400, now 401. If Paul would conform his methods to certain policies which they advocated, they would acknowledge and sustain his work. Otherwise, they could no longer look upon it with favor or grant it their support. So what did some of the leading brethren... What were some of their former ideas and prejudices? Having come from a Jewish background, they still believed that Christians still needed to keep the ceremonial laws and so forth like that. So they were telling Paul, no, you've got to start preaching this, Paul. If you don't preach this, we can't support you anymore. Because what you're preaching, you're telling the Gentiles they don't have to become like a Jew first to become a Christian. You're telling them they don't have to keep the laws of Moses. You're telling them they don't have to come to Passover and Pentecost and things like that. And it's really making it hard for us back here in Jerusalem. Because we've got the Sanhedrin breathing down our back. We've got people who are coming in from a Jewish background. And they're doing just fine keeping the laws of Moses and believing in Jesus. So what you're preaching is really making the work really hard for us. But Paul, for all those years, stood up and says, No, man, I'm not going to preach air just so I can get your support. I can't. I've got to preach exactly what God wants me to preach. And Paul loved the brethren. He prayed for them. And you know, towards the end of his life, you know what he did? He shaved his head. Kept the Feast of Pentecost just to give in a little bit. It wasn't long after that, and he died in, in Rome. And so there's only one person who had ever put on human flesh who never, ever gave in to human plans and forsake God's plan. That one person is Jesus. 
And yet we have to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and not do things just because someone who has authority told you to do it. You need to find out what God wants you to do and you stick with that plan no matter the consequences. Because in the end of time, every earthly support you will lose. All you will have is God's support. And this is why we need to find out what is God's will right now, how to live, how to reach people, and let him be the planner and the problem solver of our life. We've got to learn this lesson. Because ultimately, the reason we're still here isn't because we don't have enough printing presses. We're still here because men are still in control of the work, and it's not God. And that sounds awfully strong, friends. But our good intentions is not necessarily in agreement with God. And we'll talk more about that this afternoon when we look at, say, the example of the disciples and Lazarus is sick. Jesus, you need to go see Lazarus right away. But if he had seen Lazarus right away, Lazarus would have died, would not have died. And then Jesus wouldn't be able to prove his divinity just before he's crucified by raising Lazarus from the dead. See, they had a plan, but their plan was no good. It wasn't according to God's will. And so they're questioning Jesus as he waits for a couple of days and doesn't, it's like, well, does he even love Lazarus? I thought he loved Lazarus. And so when he does want to go, they say, well, this isn't a good time to go because there's a lot of people who don't like you back there. So when they wanted Jesus to go, he says, not now. So Jesus says, I'm not going now. And they say, no, you need to go. Then Jesus says, come on, let's go now. No, no, you don't want to go now. And you can see how contrary, even with good intentions, how our plans, good intentions, could be completely contrary to the will of God. Which is why every morning we need to wake up and consecrate ourselves to God, our whole heart, and let God be God. You choose to be obedient. God will open the doors. He'll show you the way to reach people. Make yourself available for service. God will bring someone in your life without you trying to take the work in your own hands. You be ready to serve. You be ready to serve with a thankful heart because all that God has done for you and the power you've received to live the life that is what life is about, the life of Jesus. And you know, friends, God will do marvelous things for us. You know, those striving to be amongst 144,000 follow the Lamb what? Wherever He goes. Not ask Him to go with us. We follow Him. There's a world of difference there, friends. There's an eternity of a difference there. We need to learn to trust God and we'll trust Him more if we just take some time. And I want you to do that. I want you to plan to take some time to look at nature. Take some time to look at the things that God has made and realize how small man is. Then we won't have to fear man's faces because we have the fear of the Lord.